0: In the world of renewable energy, we talk a lot about solar power and offshore wind. But geothermal systems are still a rarity, especially in the northeast. West coasters like me, or people in the roughly 30 countries that have embraced using heat energy inside the earth to help power communities in even larger cities, may be familiar with the concept of geothermal power plants. But today we're talking about geothermal technology that may be coming to a city near you, here in Massachusetts. And that's home heating and cooling systems that use the stable temperature of the ground to decarbonize home temperature control. Utility providers like National Grid and Eversource are conducting pilot programs to network geothermal systems for campuses, neighborhoods, and now even affordable housing developments. The projects, some of which are just heading into construction, are an opportunity to figure out how to incorporate geothermal power into the state's goals for hitting net zero carbon in the next few decades. I'm Jennifer Smith, and this is the Codcast, Commonwealth Beacon's podcast about policy and civic life here in Massachusetts. I'm joined by two experts with National Grid today, Director of Future of Heat Solutions, Owen brady Trachik and Manager of Gas Decarbonization Technologies, Bill Foley. Owen, Bill, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for
2: having us. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So let's start in Science Corner. How does geothermal energy work Broadly, if you've never been in a place that has talked about renewable energy aside from some solar panels or maybe offshore wind, what's different about
2: geothermal? So maybe I'll kick this off and Bill, feel free to add on here. It's easier to start by talking about how a heat pump works and then to expand to explain what geothermal is and how that differs from other types of heat pumps that customers might encounter. A heat pump effectively moves energy from a cooler space to a hotter space which is pumping against the natural diffusion of energy following a thermal gradient. So if you have a refrigerator in your home, you're trying to take the heat out of the refrigerator. So the space inside is already cool. The space outside is already warm. It's trying to take extra heat energy and move it from inside the space to outside the space. An air conditioner in your window is doing the same thing, right? It's trying to take the energy and move it to a place that it otherwise wouldn't naturally go. What a geothermal system does is It's taking that energy and instead of putting it to the air, either inside your room, like in the case of a refrigerator or outside your house, in the case of a window air conditioner, it's actually exchanging it with the ground, hence the geo part of it. So a fluid is circulated in the case of a uh, closed loop geothermal system, which is what most residential systems are. A fluid is circulated down, oftentimes several hundred feet. And as it's traveling down the pipe and then returning back up to the surface, it is able to exchange energy with the ground. And the ground is a relatively stable temperature. You'll experience this if you ever go into a, a cave. Uh, you'll know that it's a, it's a pretty constant temperature. So there's a lot of opportunity to be able to exchange energy both in the summer and in the winter while having a pretty moderate temperature to design from rather than the air temperature, which fluctuates from Maybe up to 100 degrees Fahrenheit down to minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit, depending on the, the winter conditions. So the, the, it's easier to exchange the energy because the delta between where you're trying to get to and the, uh, the source or sink that you're working with is, is quite a bit smaller than it is if you're using the air.
0: So Massachusetts and many of its cities have rolled out pretty ambitious decarbonization plans. There is a few different kind of metrics for when they would all like to move off of uh, traditional fossil fuels. But system wise, Bill, could you talk to me a little bit about if you're thinking about the menu of renewable energy options, where geothermal tends to fit best into that picture?
1: Yeah, so I, I think this is up to individual opinions. Um, what we're finding at National Grid is geothermal. So if you look at the, the housing stock in Boston, the housing stock is very old. The general building stock, commercial, residential, industrial, it's really tough to get in there and and it's really expensive to get in there and make geothermal work. Um, so I think what National Grid thinks, and in in my personal opinion, is is you know, this is really good for new builds, for deep renovations, um, which are which is one of the projects that we're working on. Um, it, it really works if if you can kind of get like a, a you know, start from the studs, essentially. So it's a really good fit there and, and and we're learning too. We're learning with retrofits, we're learning with some projects that we're doing as as well, now, um, you know what it takes to retrofit our existing housing stock. Um, so it's something that that we're really hoping to, um, to continue to learn on but but from my personal opinion, um, it works a lot better with like I said, if you've got the kind of the studs, the studs in
0: and part of the consideration of course is is having the space to do it as well you've got both the essential you know existing structures of a house that you'd need to work with but then also you have to have uh, enough space to throw a borehole down into uh, pretty deep into the earth. So, So what does this look like if you live near a place that is going through a geothermal retrofit and they're looking outside their window? What are they seeing? Kind of walk me through sort of what the visuals are above ground and then what's actually going on below ground. How does that piping get in? How far is this going? Why is there a giant tower sticking out of the ground next to your house?
1: Yeah, no. The construction process can be a bit disruptive. Um, so what we do is is we we bring out drill rigs, right? Owen mentioned that we go deep into the earth. In some cases, these boreholes are going six, seven, eight hundred plus feet deep into the ground. So you're bringing out big, loud, noisy drill rigs. You know, they're they're not great to have around for the short period that they're there. Um, but once those holes are in the ground, um, essentially everything is restored back to normal, whether it's a parking lot, parkland. You know your front lawn. Um, you're none the wiser once the project is complete. So it's a bit of disruption during the construction phase. Um, once everything is done, it you you're none the wiser. All of the pumping equipment, everything that's circulating the fluid through those pipes, uh, tends to be either, either in a basement, um, in you know a separate building. It's it's generally not anything you're ever going to know um, is happening. Um, you know, Owen started with what heat pumps are. You generally wouldn't know what heating source you've got, um, unless, you know, unless you're going down and, and, you know, trying to figure out exactly what, uh, what that heat source is using, whether it's an air source heat pump or a ground source heat pump. Um, So once once everything's done, you're really none the wiser.
0: And uh, to talk a little bit more kind of about why geothermal is often a good option. So so the EPA, the U.S. EPA, says the heat pumps are the most energy efficient, environmentally clean and cost effective systems for heating and cooling buildings. I think the estimate a few years ago was that it had the potential to take about 10% of the U.S. heating system. The estimates might have changed since then. But before we start getting into the local projects, which I'm really excited to do, Owen, could you talk a little bit about sort of the evolution of Uh, geothermal as kind of something that's becoming a bit more friendly, not just in uh, geothermal activity, rich tectonic plate universes like California, but also out here in the Northeast.
2: Yeah. And I think this is actually a little bit of an unfortunate misnomer uh, that the, the industry has adopted. So Geothermal, when you think of Scandinavia or where my wife's family is from in Poland, they have a lot of actual geothermal activity, meaning that there are hot water sources uh, where they are oftentimes producing steam or you might go there and they have thermal baths or there's those kind of things. You know, the geysers out in Yellowstone, that's the sort of geothermal that people are thinking of. What we're talking about here is what they tended to call sort of low temperature geothermal as opposed to high temperature or enhanced geothermal systems. And so it's important to draw the distinction between those two. It doesn't mean that there's not very exciting things happening in sort of the enhanced high temperature geothermal systems. Uh, There are even some companies from Massachusetts that are looking at doing new exciting things with it. But what we're talking about here doesn't require tectonic plate boundaries. It doesn't require specific geology. It doesn't require any of that sort of conditions uh, that, that you might otherwise have thought would be would be required for geothermal it just requires depth now in some cases you might need more depth if the subsurface is extremely uh, you know extremely incompatible with geothermal for instance but in many cases uh, you can make it work it's just is a question of how many boreholes you might need and and then uh, to Bill's point of what thermal sources you're able to kind of look at so what we've seen is in increasing sort of awareness of that fact, drillers are becoming a little bit more sort of open to working in in different environments. And people are starting to recognize that if they are going to electrify their home by putting in a heat pump, this is sort of a booster to that, right? And that's what takes a heat pump, which is already energy efficient, to the next level and to that sort of front of the pack in terms of operating efficiency uh, year round. And so I think that's where we're starting to see increased interest of course things like the inflation reduction act as well have increased uh, some of the incentives available for the technology and so this is both a sort of high cost high performance system uh, and so if there are ways that we can make the economics work for customers they end up with something that uses a very low amount of energy on the back end it's just then a question of how able we are to uh, to put all of that together and to make it work for individuals who might not have a lot of dollars to be able to invest in a system um, and that's especially true in the case of 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 renters as well which uh, going back to bill's point around the the, the building stock in, in sort of the metro boston area there are, of course, a lot of people that are renting, and that can complicate the decision for them uh, if their landlord is is perhaps not so interested in the disruption on the property.
0: So, Bill, you mentioned this is a, a learning process here. Let's talk about why that has uh, been uh, the case. A project last year in Lowell, I think, was the first under your geothermal pilot program. So the goal was to design a network geothermal energy system. Uh, Big picture first, why pursue a geothermal pilot program to begin with? Why was that of interest to National Grid and you folks specifically?
1: Yeah, uh, the Lowell project is really exciting. So National Grid, uh, in coordination with the Department of Public Utilities, uh, started the network geothermal pilot program really to start studying how effective network geothermal can be um, in aiding the state to meet their decarbonization goals. So we're planning to do up to four separate projects, networking entire neighborhoods together. So instead of just you know your house and, and you bearing the infrastructure costs of a borehole and the piping and the heat pumps, um, networking together and kind of utilitizing um, the geothermal uh, energy and the geothermal uh, system a- among a, a whole neighborhood. So in, in Lowell, what we're doing is we're networking together about 30 homes and businesses. And these are um, you know, single family homes, apartment buildings, low income uh, market rate, uh, renters, owners, everything. Um, and we are basically, bear- National Grid is basically bearing the infrastructure cost. Um, We're doing the boreholes, we're piping everyone together. Um, We're actually providing all the in-house upgrades from an energy efficiency standpoint, providing the heat pumps um, to really make it a no barrier to entry for these folks in Lowell. Mm -hmm. And the benefit here is National Grid will charge a very marginal um, monthly fee for this service. The customers don't have any upfront capital cost, um, so they're not having a, a layout 50, $100,000 50, $100,000 for a system like this, all they have to do is pay 45 to $60 a month and they get access to clean, renewable uh, energy to heat and cool their home. Um, this is something uh, that we've received funding through the Department of Public Utilities for to really start to learn the, you know, how it functions thermally, how, how it works economically, how expensive it is, what the appetite is for customers and really start to answer those questions to see if this is something that we could roll out to a broader customer
0: base. What have you guys learned about what's different about a networked system than kind of a house or a project using this sort of geothermal heat pump system?
1: So actually, the the Lowell project is about to go in construction, so it's not yeah. it's not completed yet. Um, so I can't say we've learned anything yet, and um, <laughs> we're 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 hoping to learn that it's much more efficient. Um, so the, the idea behind network geothermal systems is that the individual customers on the loop can actually be thermal sources and sinks as well. So they can provide heat to their neighbors. So for instance, and this is kind of the classic example, but like a supermarket or or a hockey arena that's constantly rejecting heat from their place because even in the winter time, that heat can be put back into the loop and shared with residential customers who are calling for heat to heat their homes. Obviously, that's pie in the sky, and that's not the case that we have in Lowell. But we do have some some uh, commercial customers that are going to have very different heating and cooling demands than the residential customers. So theoretically, with a networked system, you can design a much more efficient, much more optimized and smaller system to serve the same number of customers than you would if you were to install individual geothermal systems for each of those customers.
2: And this goes back to a point you were making earlier about the sort of constructability of geothermal, right? So the more that we can integrate the different load profiles of customers, the fewer boreholes that we actually have to put in. So we recognize that drilling hundreds of feet down not only requires space, but it does present noise considerations and and, and certainly a, a level of disruption. And so if we can actually take advantage of those divergent load profiles, then we can say, oh, we only actually need, you know, three boreholes instead of 10 sort of thing. And, and that means that we can take advantage of the natural sort of thermal resources within a community. Uh, and, and there are various other ways to do this as well. You, you, uh, there's things like solar thermal. There's, of course, things like exchanging with wastewater. There's a lot of interest in, in New York City of the water that gets pumped out of the subway system that's sort of heated because of the operation of that system. So there are things like that that are continuing uh, to be explored Uh, throughout the geothermal industry. And and we're really interested to see what that could mean as we think about providing the distribution of energy uh, in in addition to how we would then capture sort of the, the generation aspect of it.
0: Oh, and you had mentioned earlier the the sort of misapprehension that often happens that all geothermal looks exactly the same way. Uh, as you're all getting started on the Lowell project, kind of in the construction phase, and as you're getting ready to launch um, a project in Boston as well with Boston Housing Authority units, uh, how, how have you kind of run into any uh, other sort of confusions about what geothermal is, what it might look like, what the experience is? Are there any any myths you'd like to bust at this early stage, or are there still some that you're in the process of of sorting through?
2: You know, I think it's, we of course live in a state where the the interest in, in energy and the interest in climate is higher than it is in some parts of the country. And so people here, I think, are reasonably well-educated about energy systems, about mechanical systems. And, and I often find that to be really exciting because it gives us a chance to talk in detail uh, with with consumers who are trying to figure out how do I meet my energy needs? How do I keep my house warm in the wintertime? Uh, how do I keep it cool in the summertime increasingly? And, and how do I do so in a way that sort of matches my both economic and and values profile, right? And so that's a a really exciting conversation to be able to have. I do think that some folks believe that, uh, you know, geothermal requires a forced air home. So if you don't, if you have an old boiler and you've got hydronic heating, there's absolutely no way you can use the geothermal system. That's not true. There are ways that you can install geothermal systems. Of course, ductwork could be added. We're also starting to see the use of variable refrigerant flow or VRF systems where it's attached to a geothermal heat pump and then is distributing the energy throughout the home uh, using little uh, runs of of refrigerant lines. So uh, that that actually can work well. And then in some cases, you can add multiple zones to a home that previously didn't have it because you're putting different head units in different rooms. And and so there, there are ways to kind of work through things like that. I do think that the, the space consideration around the property is an interesting one or, or the geology doesn't work for me, right? Like I don't have a geyser in my backyard, so I can't use geothermal. That's definitely been an interesting thing to talk through. Uh, and, and I think as we explore this more, what we're really excited about is thinking about how do we make geothermal more accessible for more people? Um, So within the Lowell project, for instance, we're planning to put a large number of boreholes in a, a centralized location. So that means that we can kind of coordinate the construction in a way that is reasonable, hopefully that minimizes disruption. And that also then allows customers who are off taking from that system to just have a service line run to their to their house. So they don't actually have to have really anything done on their property. And that's much more analogous to the experience that customers have today with the natural gas system. So so we're excited about that. And also one of the really exciting facets about the Lowell uh, project in particular, and Bill, please build on this where I, uh, I don't go far enough, is that we are actually looking to be the first utility in the country to put boreholes in the utility right of way. So as you think about the sort of where we would install gas lines running down your street, we could just go down hundreds of feet below that and put in boreholes and then use that same right of way also for the distribution of the energy. And if you think about that, you're then opening up the sort of massive three-dimensional space that exists under where we typically are only using about three feet below grade to install a natural gas line. So it's, it's almost akin to thinking about mineral rights, right? And saying, well, th- what we're doing on the surface is a strip but you could project that down and then you could think of leveraging all of that space to bring energy to customers. And, and that's that's going to be a really, uh, I think, fascinating evolution of, of bringing geothermal to these denser areas where, uh, where space is a consideration.
0: The uh, Boston Housing Authority director, Kenzie Bach, uh, was on the podcast a few months ago, if I can recall correctly how time works. And she said at the time that, you know, the agency was really excited about looking at geothermal as a way to decarbonize public housing, especially because those are some of the places that they might have uh, some more communal space, bigger lots that might be uh, kind of better suited for that. So you're going to be working on, it was just announced last week, uh, seven buildings in a Franklin Field Apartments pilot that is going to be fully fossil free, I think, after transitioning from gas to electric power. So uh, you're all of a weekend, but tell me sort of what's being envisioned for that project right now.
1: Yeah, uh, it's kind of a blank slate right now. So we're really excited. We've been talking to the Boston Housing Authority, trying to make a project like this work for Quite some time now, so we're really excited that it's off the ground. Uh, Owen touched on a couple of things earlier that um, are kind of in play. So I like to say, kind of our base level design is just a bore field. It's six to eight hundred feet vertical bores, some quantity of them in a grid pattern, and, and and that would work at the Boston Housing Authority. There is green space that we can uh, utilize to to put a bunch of bores and and harness the Earth's energy to to heat and cool these seven buildings that are in play. There are some really cool technologies that are out there, some newer technologies. I, I like to say, you know, geothermal has been around for 100 years. The, the way that we're utilizing it now is new, but it's a proven technology drilling deep into the earth is is. Pretty straightforward. Uh, Owen mentioned wastewater heat recovery. Um, So this is something we've been talking to some vendors on to see if we might be able to tap into some sewer lines, whether they be Boston Water and Sewer, whether they be uh, local sewer lines, like within the buildings. And, and, you know, if you think about it, you take a, a shower with 110 degree water and you dump all that water down the drain. That's just BTUs that you're throwing into the sewer system, right? Um, so it's that's something that we're looking at there. Um, you know, th- it, this is a big facility. so this, even though there is some there is a decent amount of green space, we've got to figure out how to optimize that. So we've, we're looking at things like angled boring, um, right right away boring, like like Owen had said. So basically just figuring out how we can best utilize the space around for vertical bores. You know, not necessarily available here, but but um, in some of our New York projects as well. Like we're we're looking at recovery from industrial processes, from data centers. So really anywhere that's kind of dumping heat that can, like I said earlier, that can be moved around to different places within the neighborhood. Anything can be a, a thermal resource. It doesn't have to be a, a, a vertical bore. So those are some of the things that are on the on the table here. Um, there, there's some new technologies as well around um, kind of tapping into like local aquifers, and and I won't go too deep into the details, but it's essentially being able to get more BTUs and more tonnage out of a smaller area. Um, so we're really looking to figure out what we can trial with the with the BHA project at Franklin Field, and we're really excited to partner with them.
0: So uh, the the question essentially of one of the big barriers to geothermal being cost has has come up a few times, and of course right now in the Boston project we're talking about public housing authority units. So uh, I wonder if if one of you could kind of talk about what's the the value or the hope for for sort of incorporating geothermal into again the the menu the array that's available for decarbonizing public housing and and sort of what the cost ends up looking like. How does that get defrayed? Who's kind of contributing to taking that on? Because presumably, of course, especially in public housing, you don't want that cost to then be shifted over into the folks living there. So so kind of work me through how that math can can kind of sort out.
1: Yeah, I can I can start. No and feel free to jump in. The um so the the program that we're operating under now, it's actually the entire gas rate base in Massachusetts that's paying for these projects. So the cost is spread out as a few pennies on everyone's bill, it's not going directly to the customers that are directly benefiting because this is essentially a research project. We're trying to figure out the economics, we're trying to figure out the business model, we're trying to figure out the technical capabilities and capacities of these projects. So as far as the Franklin Field project itself, just like I mentioned for Lowell, folks are gonna pay a, a set fee and it's about $45 a month to receive this service. Uh, like I said, we're partnering with the, the BHA, so they've got some funding for inside the building um, upgrades and retrofits. So they're going to be, you know, installing heat pumps and and uh, electric hot water heaters and other things to basically tie into the the geothermal system that National Grid is installing. But ultimately, um, customers there and and the BHA will will not see any. Anything beyond, you know, our forty-five dollar a month um, service fee, and and then the the cost to operate the the heat pumps and and other appliances that are inside their building. Um, Owen, if I'll toss it over to you. I'm sure you got thoughts
2: on this as well. Yeah, just just building a little bit on that, and talking less about the specific pilot that we're running right now. The way that we've been thinking about this is you're using the same pipe material to transport the fluid for a network geothermal system that you are to transport natural gas. So it's high density polyethylene. It's colored a little differently on the outside. So, you know, it's not carrying gas, but it's the same pipe material. And so if you think about it, as infrastructure runs down the street, you could put in the pipe to carry natural gas. You could put in the pipe to carry the working fluid for a network geothermal system. And the footage would be basically the same, uh, especially if you're doing what's called a single pipe system rather than a two pipe system. And therefore, the, the main cost differentiator for geothermal is and has been the boreholes. So as we think about ways that we're able to make the systems more efficient and connect more customers, which is really sort of, you know, ultimately what utilities are, are set up to do is to interconnect lots of different customers. It allows us to really minimize, hopefully, uh, the cost of those boreholes, either by sort of thoughtful construction, you know, putting them in a place where it's easier to work uh, as opposed to having to buy really expensive real estate to put them in or, or have the space or to make use of, as, as Bill was saying earlier, some of those different thermal resources. The in-home cost customers that want to electrify which as we know under both the state and national grids plans will be a significant number of customers going forward is going to be pretty similar whether that's an air source system or a geothermal system and so ultimately we're saying this cost in the home is pretty similar the infrastructure cost is pretty similar, whether it's natural gas or it's the working fluid of a network geothermal system. And by the work that we are doing, by the collaboration and the community effort that comes together to make these systems happen, you're able to then minimize that third cost, which has historically differentiated uh, sort of network geothermal from the combination of, of the other two cost buckets. And so we see that as a really great way for us to hopefully be able to, to add value and to minimize the disruption associated with the energy transition.
0: Okay, the last thing I think I want to leave with is uh, these are two pilots that are starting or underway. You mentioned this might go out to, you know, four is, is sort of what you're envisioning. Uh, these are two very kind of different layouts, different communities that you're looking at so far. What other types of communities uh, are you interested in seeing if you can make geothermal heat pump systems work in? What, what sorts of things have been complicated that you're looking forward to kind of learning how to transition over to this particular tech?
1: Good question. I, I would say anything, right? We're here to we're here to learn. We're we're here to understand um, where this technology will and won't work, right? This is a pilot program where we're not just looking for success. We're looking for where it might be challenging as well. Um, so I, I can't define like my utopia of, of of a network geothermal neighborhood. I'll say like right now we're we're in a public housing complex and we're in uh, you know kind of a university area. So anything outside of that, a, a you know a downtown area that's got a mix of of a lot of businesses and and apartment buildings and single family homes, um, somewhere super urban would be really challenging. You know down, downtown Boston, we've always talked about how challenging that would be. Um, really, we're we're open to anything, and we hope to try some new things in the years to come.
0: Thanks again to Owen Brady Trachik and Bill Foley for being here on the podcast with me this week, and thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer Smith. Our producer is John Gee. Leave us a rating and review wherever you're hearing this now if you want to help other folks find us, and email podcast at commonwealthbeacon.org if you ever want to get in touch directly. We'll be back in your ears next week.